This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for this live program that will go from 11 to noon today. And I've been looking forward to this. Um, I have a couple of guests who are going to be calling in. Dr. Catherine Coiner is going to be calling in. Uh, She's an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports injuries at the University of Connecticut. But we're bringing her on because of her activity on the board of directors of the Perry Initiative. And this is an initiative building a pipeline for young women to become more involved in engineering and medical fields. So I really want to talk to her about that. And in the second half of the show, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Setu Vor. Now, Dr. Vor has been a friend of the show. He's been on before. He's taken a new position. He's now the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. He's an excellent doctor. He's a pulmonologist, internist. But he has been, whenever he's on the show, he brings us new information about a lot to do with population health meaning how to avoid chronic illness. He's the guy who came up with the 5-15-30. We talk about it all the time, right? Five portions of fruits and vegetables, 15 minutes of mindfulness, 30 minutes of exercise every day, and you could avoid chronic illness. So he's got some new programs that he's starting and he's going to be implementing over at the Mashantucket Tribal Nation. He oversees all of tribal health, employee health, and Pequot health. So it's going to be great to chat with him and catch up. Uh, Last night, uh, I had the pleasure of being at uh, MMA, Bellator MMA, which was uh, interesting. Great crowd, uh, as always, at Mohegan. I think everybody had a great time. Uh, It was a long show, that's for sure. I mean, it was packed. We had a lot of fights. No one seriously injured. You know, one of the things I like the most about sports is when after the event, both of the combatants in in boxing or MMA have respect for the other person they went to battle with. I mean, that's really what this is about. It's a sport, you know, and I think it's so important to teach young people that. And, and, and it makes me very happy to see that. What saddens me is when, you know, they do this in-your-face thing. Uh, and it's one of the things, I, it, it's a rarity when we see a sore loser or some a poor sport in MMA. And I don't know why. And same in boxing. It's really relatively rare nowadays uh, with young fighters. It almost it stands out when you have a situation where one fighter is, you know, a, a sore loser. I don't, better, no better term. So it's something I like that's, that's being developed maybe in sports, uh, especially in combat sports where it's so physical uh, and – uh, it just it's it's a pleasure to see february 17th 1781 this day in medicine rene lenec was born dr lenec was a f- french physician and in 1819 he discovered the stethoscope it's amazing because when you look at what he discovered 
back in 1819. It's not that far off from what we're still using today as a stethoscope. He actually died at the age of 45 from tuberculosis. But he was a flutist. So he played the flute and took some of those principles. So his first stethoscope was actually a long tube. And um, it was used in a game his children would play where they would talk to each other in the tube. And he took this narrow tube and put a diaphragm at the end, and he would listen to people's lungs and heart. And he would follow these patients so that when they died, he would look at their autopsies and equate the sounds he was hearing to what uh, they he found in pathology after they passed on. So um, we remember him, and once again, uh, somebody whose contribution to medicine is still being used today. I want to talk a little bit about the first blood test to detect concussions. Uh, I was on Ray Dunaway's show yesterday talking about this. So FDA approval has been given to Banyan biomarkers. Uh, basically, a biomarker is something that you could find in the blood or spinal fluid that indicates the existence of a condition. And kind of the holy grail is in concussion, trying to find a biomarker to tell you if someone had a concussion. And this company is saying they had it and got FDA approval. Basically, this is a blood test that looks for proteins. The UCHL1 and GFAP, glial fibrillary acetic protein, proteins in the blood. Here's what happens. The brain gets hit, and as a result, these proteins get emitted into the bloodstream, and they cross the blood-brain barrier so that you can do a blood test in a vein and look at the blood and detect the presence of these proteins. And an elevation in these proteins or the existence of these proteins will tell you if someone had a traumatic brain injury. Different term. So a couple of things. They're saying this test will avoid doing CT scans. Well, we don't do CT scans for concussion. It's a clinical diagnosis. If someone's getting better, we don't subject them to radiation. And we know that in mild traumatic brain injury or concussion, the CT is often negative. It's only if we suspect a more serious traumatic brain injury that we get an imaging study. The other thing this test does not pick up are the subconcussive hits that we equate with CTE those constant hits where you have multiple injuries. What's also interesting is that this particular test, you don't get the blood results for four hours. So I think people are getting the impression that we're going to be sitting on the sideline drawing blood on players to determine if they can go back in the game. That's not going to happen. I'll tell you where this is going to help the most. It's going to help most in the emergency room. So when people come in after a car accident and say, I have a concussion, I have a headache, they can do a blood test and determine if they've had brain injury. And it's actually going to affect a lot of lawyers uh, because if you're going forward on the grounds that your person has had a traumatic brain injury, there will now be a test to confirm or disprove that. It's not going to change what we do as clinicians either in sports or uh, or particularly in the office, from that standpoint. Also, it's important to note that the test is not approved in children. So we're not going to be sitting out there in the Little League and, and, and Pop Warner. 
But I will tell you that if this holds up, it's a huge step in the right direction. So I think it's a legit test, but I think it's being portrayed in the media as having a lot of ubiquity and, and being able to do a lot more than it will. So it's not necessarily a game changer from the standpoint of sports. So something to keep in mind. It's something uh, that we'll watch and see how it goes along uh, when it becomes available. Again, very expensive test. I believe each test is 150 to $200. We have to see how insurance is going to treat that. But um, I, think, I think it's going to have a lot of legal implications uh, more than anything. Uh, one of the topics we've talked about on this program a lot is uh, exercise for patients with Parkinson's disease and how much it helps, whether it be Latin dance, boxing, yoga, things such as that. An article that came out this week almost takes it to another level. What they found was high-intensity treadmill exercise in patients recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, not on medication, can avoid medication. And by high intensity, they talk about getting on a treadmill, going to 80 to 85 percent of maximum heart rate for 30 minutes three times a week. And they found that these patients with mild symptoms would not require medication until much later. So, again, very important for us to note and, uh, and pay attention to, again, how we could avoid taking medication and still improve a condition. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Catherine Coiner, orthopedic surgeon at the University of Connecticut, about the Perry Initiative. Phone numbers here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. That's the music of Cole Swindell. Uh, Cole Swindell will be at the Mohegan Sun tonight. Uh, huge show. Uh, young country artist. Uh, and uh, I, I saw them loading in and getting ready to load in last night as we were leaving from uh, Bellator MMA. And I think it's going to be a super program. So if you're in the area, get over to Mohegan Sun and enjoy a wonderful evening. And uh, maybe stay over the night and enjoy the snowfall uh, from a hotel room there. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Catherine Coiner. Dr. Coiner is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in sports injuries um, at the University of Connecticut. Um, Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Lessie. Happy to be here. Um, let's talk a little bit. I've been hearing about the Perry Initiative. Uh, Lauren Ganey was on the show about six months ago, mentioned it. Uh, you and I talked about it uh, at, a, I think, a Connecticut Sun game when we were sitting together at the game. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Perry Initiative is? Yeah, actually, let me give you a little background first. And Dr. Ganey sure. and I, both being females, orthopedic surgeons, were actually a, a minority. Only about 7 to 14 percent of orthopedic surgeons are made up of women. And that's important just as we all know, we have patients that are men, women, boys, and girls, and we want you know, physicians to reflect what our patients are. And that helps with uh, patient interactions and, and building relationships and, and them feeling comfortable. So the Perry Initiative started approximately um, 12 years ago, and it's a nonprofit organization. Um, and the namesake is a female orthopedic surgeon 
that was a mentor to many, many uh, women going into this field. And, and basically the principle is, is that it's to expose high school girls to more male-dominated fields like orthopedics and engineering. So it's a free one-day workshop um, that we hold. We um, brought it to Connecticut, Dr. Ganey and I, uh, back in October. And basically high school girls get to come and get to do mock surgeries with drills and saws and and sort of see what it's like to be an orthopedic surgeon from a female perspective to show them that, you know, they can do a field like this as well. Kathy, you must be an, a special minority because, in particular, you're doing sports. Now, I, I, I have to tell you, I don't know of too many young women who do orthopedics and then have a subspecialty in sports. Are you particularly underrepresented in sports as opposed to hand or foot and ankle or, or some other subspecialty? Yeah, I don't know the exact percentage, but you're exactly right. Uh, if a majority, there is a higher percentage of women that are hand surgeons um, than any other specialty, and then pediatrics. So sports medicine is definitely an underrepresented, but as we know, the more and more women are playing sports and young girls, and, and I think that's very important to make them feel comfortable as well. Do you think it's an advantage, uh, especially with so many more women's sports teams, um, your activity with the Connecticut Sun? Do you think that it can be an advantage? I think it absolutely can be an advantage. And for me in particular, I, I played college basketball. I played at UMass. So I've also been on that other side of things. And I think when athletes, both men and women, sort of see that and understand that, and I'm not trying to take the game away from them, and I'm just trying to get them back to playing healthy, I think they really respect that. One of the things I've noticed actually in neurology is, you know, we're almost 50-50 now uh, with uh, male-to-female ratio in that specialty. So it's interesting because I think when I first started out, um, there were fewer women going into medicine altogether. And that's certainly been a huge reversal when you see how many women have go are going into medicine overall. Um, has that change been really over the last 30 years or so? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's sort of one of the main missions of the Perry Initiative is nearly 50 to 51 percent of most medical schools are now women. So in order to capture the brightest and smartest and most technically sound people, we have to also appeal to that female gender. And this is one way for early exposure, because let's be honest, when we think about an orthopedic surgeon, there's definitely a stereotype that you think you have to be big and strong. And I think Dr. Ganey and I can both tell you, you know, it's not about how strong you are. It's about how smart you are and, and how you can get the job done. So having an early mentor has definitely shown to um, allow more women to go into the field or at least expose it to them so they, they might think of it as an opportunity. And if you look at the Perry graduates that have graduated all across the country for the last, you know, 10 years, the percentage has nearly doubled of those women matching into orthopedics versus the standard 14% if you look at the general population. So I think we are continuing to improve that number, but we still have a long ways to go. Other specialties where women are underrepresented in medicine, just thinking out loud, neurosurgery? Neurosurgery, cardiothoracic surgery, um, ENT, most of the surgical subspecialties, just from, you know, the fact of the matter is most women are still sort of that mother and the wife, and they have to balance numerous roles. So from a surgical specialty, it, it's a little bit more challenging, but I think it's still definitely doable. Uh, you mentioned the program you had in October here. Um, what other things do you have planned here in Connecticut? Because uh, the initiative came out of Texas, where you were before. Is that Am I correct? No, it's actually out of California. So okay. the original, um, Dr. Jacqueline Perry, she was at UCSF. 
So there's an engineer and an orthopedic surgeon from UCSF that started the Perry Initiative. So I had brought it to Texas uh, back in 2011, and then I'm now on the board of directors for them. So I've been to numerous cities, and it was important to me when I got hired at UConn Health to bring the Perry Initiative. But uh, Dr. Gus Mazaka, who is our chairman at UConn Health, he has been extremely, extremely supportive and um, this mission is near and dear to his heart, as he also has a high school daughter. So he's been very invested and has helped me and excited to announce that we're going to have an ongoing program that's similar to the Perry, but more, more regular on a regular basis. And we've named that the IWEM. So that's Inspiring Women in Engineering and Medicine. So we hope to bring that to UConn. Probably our first program is going to be in April. Well, as a father of two female physicians, I can tell you that it is very important uh, to have a role model. Um, uh, let me shift gears a little bit. Engineering. Um, are women still underrepresented in engineering? Yes, that's what the statistics say. It's not quite as significant as orthopedic surgeons, but it's still, I believe, only you know 18 to 25 percent. Um, and we can definitely continue to improve that as well. You're starting with high school uh, women. Uh, Correct. Is it worthwhile getting down to the elementary level to some degree? Yeah. So actually the Perry um, initiative has in more recent years um, come out with sort of self-containing modules that are called orthopedics in action. And they're basically sawbone kits that can be purchased by exactly that middle school, elementary school, where they're reusable models where people can learn engineering as well as medical techniques um, to uh, implement into their classrooms. Um, so I think that's a thing that we'll continue to work on, and, and STEM is, you know, super important and uh, continuing to be a focus in our schools and education. Kathy, if, if someone's listening to the program now and has a, a daughter or granddaughter that they may want to get involved with one of your programs, how do they reach out to the Perry Initiative? Yeah, so actually, if you go to my website, which is just uh, www.drcoiner, so that's D-R-C-O-Y-N-E-R.com, there's a tab on the top right that says Aspiring Physicians. Uh, currently, there's a tab that says the Perry Initiative, and, and, and by the end of the weekend, there'll be a tab that says IWIM, and they can just click on that, join our mailing list, and um, we'll definitely get them all the information in the future. Kathy, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking time today to uh, share this information with our listeners. And uh, thank you for everything you do at the University of Connecticut and uh, really taking care of athletes. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Leslie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Catherine Coiner, um, who was talking a little bit about the Perry Initiative. Uh, next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Setu Vora. Dr. Vora is the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. And we're going to be talking about kind of population health. What are we going to do to get the population healthy? And more importantly, try to keep the population safe. A lot of the things he talked to me about this week, uh, actually before the shooting on Thursday, uh, really uh, will impact that. I think it was Wednesday with the, when the shooting occurred in Florida. A lot of the things he was talking about, um, in particular the Adverse Childhood Experiences score, uh, really has implications. So I, I ask you all to stay tuned. If you have questions, 860-522-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
And I have the honor of chatting with Dr. Setu Vora in this second half of the program. Dr. Vora is a pulmonologist, internist, uh, in board certified and has been in practice many years, but is now taking a new position as the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Um, in addition, he oversees the tribal health, employee health, and Pequot Healthcare. Setu, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tony. Hey, Setu, you open as always. I learn something whenever I talk to you, whether it be on the air or in private. And the adverse childhood experiences score, something I'd never heard about till we chatted on uh, Monday or Tuesday. I started looking it up, and, and then we have a new crisis in America. I'm going to open it up to you. What is yeah. the ACEs score, and how does it come about? How is it going to help us? So, Tony, you know, um, thank you for uh, inviting me to your excellent program again. Thank you. I appreciate that opportunity. Um, And uh, as you pointed out, not a few days or weeks go by and we have a massive uh, catastrophe of some sorts across either the U.S. or overseas. And we often wonder, you know, how many kids, how many people are affected by it directly and indirectly. And then, as you know, I deal with mostly patients who have chronic medical conditions and oftentimes leading to critical illness. And that made me ask the question and go upstream and dig deeper as to why some people do have chronic health conditions and others seem to be slightly resistant to it, immune to it. And that's how I stumbled upon the research behind the adverse childhood experience and the score associated with that, the ACEs score. Um, And uh, it's been a journey of learning for me for the last few years, and it seems like it's becoming more and more relevant for us to start focusing on prevention. Can you tell us a little bit about the score? Um, I know there are 10 questions. Uh, Just to give people a feel, this is not a complicated score requiring some um, higher learning. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to do a quick check. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Yes. Perfect. So, yeah, I think, you know, um, for most of the listeners, uh, many of you may have heard of it already. If not, it's uh, a pretty obvious common sense approach that if someone has uh, bad events happening to them early or in the life, uh, it somehow impacts their uh, psychological makeup and even their physical makeup that impacts their health outcomes down the road. And that is what is summarized by the ACEs score. Now, there are different components to that, and it's pretty straightforward. So I look at it mainly in three broad categories. Uh, Does a child or a young person have any exposure to abuse at home, such as physical abuse, emotional abuse, or sexual abuse? Uh, Do the children feel neglected either at home or in, at school, such as physical neglect or emotional neglect. And then we also look at the uh, home environment. So do our children have a safe environment that is nurturing and loving, or are they exposed to any sort of household dysfunction? And what I mean by that is, are they exposed to guardians or parents or other family members who have significant mental behavioral illness that they take out on the kids? Uh, Do they have any, um, you know, uh, parents uh, that are incarcerated 
do they have uh, any direct exposure to intimate or domestic violence within the household? Are they exposed to substance abuse around them? And uh, do they have a stable family or do they have parents that are separated or divorced? So these are the three buckets of exposure to trauma in childhood that they combine in a numerical score and they, the researchers call it the ACES score. So, say to what do you do when you get the score? So, and first of all, at what stage should a child be tested um, for this, or should you try to put together this score? It's not even really a test. It, it's really sitting there and doing a survey more than anything. Um, but at, at what age, and then what's the next step when you identify someone? And I think Tony, as as you know, you would you would imagine it is just a screening tool, and I look at it more as a, a guide to discussion, um, and not so much a concrete black and white tool that is going to absolutely predict the outcome. So I don't want the listeners to take away from this conversation that if someone has a high degree of trauma exposure, that child does not have the potential to be just the perfect child and grow into a productive adult. So it's not a, you know, a death sentence by any means or a finite um, you know, a limitation to the potential, but it is a guideline. It is a tool to evaluate the risk. So um, the pediatricians, they look for these trauma and the uh, adverse experience during their well-child visits anyway. Uh, there are certain programs and certain uh, centers that do assess the ACEs score on a more structured, regular basis. Uh, what's the best age to start? I don't think there's a finite recommendation to that unless we have any pediatricians on the call or in the audience, they can uh, help us out. But in the early childhood, that's the best area to focus on because the most impressionable brain and the uh, biological system is most vulnerable to trauma at that age. Satya, I guess, you know, one of the things, I guess the antithesis of this is that someone with a high score, we've all heard the stories of how this has been an impetus for them to be successful. People who have come from a bad environment have been able to realize I need to break this cycle. So I guess it can go either way. Um, and, and which is a way you want it. But again, uh, one of the words you used in our conversation, and, and again today, was resilience. Um, yes. So I guess if you do identify someone who's at risk, that's the next step, is to make them somewhat more resilient. Certainly. And, you know, and most of the focus on primary prevention, meaning prevention activity aimed at even um, – Preventing the onset of disease should begin at home, as is common sense. A stable, a healthy, loving home environment has more value for preventing health and diseases down the road than anything else that we can offer besides vaccines, of course. Um, so let's say, for example, a child has uh, a few significant traumatic events growing up, but the child also happens to be fortunate where they have a grandparent who is extremely loving, caring, and takes the kid under the wing 
and supports and nurtures them, that child has the great potential of overcoming all the traumatic events and still thriving. So to your point, once we do the risk assessment, the next task for the caregiver team and the parents involved in the ch ch uh, child's care are to somehow reduce the risk factors, reduce the any ongoing trauma, and then also figure out strategies and skills to build resilience. Because these kids sometimes present not with any typical symptoms, but they present with uh, you know learning disability, difficulty to focus at school. They get oftentimes labeled as uh, attention deficit uh, hyperactivity disorder. And what may be going on is actually high ACEs at home. Well, you, you've opened up a whole new area of discussion. We're going to take a short break, say, too, and then I want to get back and talk a little bit about what we've learned from these scores because it's been going on for quite a while. Uh, you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Setu Vora. And we're talking about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Score. Uh, Setu, one of the points you clearly made before the break was the importance of parenting, uh, providing a stable home life for a child and being able to work with them against adversity. Um, you know, I guess I'm asking somewhat for, you know, we require people to take a test to drive a car. We require people to take a test, um, to get a job. Should there be a test before you can become a parent? <laughs> uh, you're wading into controversial topics. Of, usual. of course. I, I mean, and I am being facetious, but you know, it, it's, I think I'm trying to make the point is the most important job in the world is being a parent. Uh, and and I, and I think that it affects all of us uh, when people are not doing a good job at parenting um, from chronic health conditions as well as, you know, safety for everybody else. Um, how do we get around that? How do we how do we train? Listen, we've probably lost some generations here, but how do we get around that for the future? I think that, like many other things, the training begins at home. Um, and I'm a firm believer that uh, when we abdicate our responsibility as parents, as a family, to inculcate uh, steady common sense values that cut across religion, that cut across race, that cut across creed, just basic common sense value of, of, of love, nurturing, faithfulness, uh, dedication, devotion, uh, and we lead by example, uh, lead by example. Uh, if, if I'm not putting my best behavior forward, uh, the children are going to learn by observing. So that, I think the first school happens to be at home, as you would agree. But our schools have a great opportunity as well um, in terms of making sure that uh, for children, they are at least provided a good, safe environment to express themselves at school. And if they find evidence of uh, trauma, then have a meaningful connection to services that can assist the, the family that is struggling with it as well. Oftentimes, the family and the parents are also the second victim. So I think it, it has to be built around compassion and not blaming 
anyone. Say to this has been going on now. The ACES score was put together, I think, in around 2000 when Kaiser Foundation started working with this. And, and yes. obviously Kaiser and Kaiser Permanente, their interest was the same as yours. How do we affect chronic health care and how do we avoid people from becoming chronically ill? What right. do we know so far since they've been doing it for at least the last 18 years? Has, has some of that been borne out uh, in the data? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Tony, the more research that uh, keeps coming out, uh, the biological basis of how and why childhood traumatic events may shape our future outcomes, that is starting to become more clearer. For example, uh, researchers have done studies on survivors of the Holocaust around World War II. And that's obviously a very painful terrible topic of uh, mass scale disaster and how did it impact the survivors they've also looked at uh, our native american american indian alaska native population and they've looked at how trauma genocide impacted their outcomes they've done studies on um uh survivors and uh, kind of uh, descendants of African-American community that trace roots back to the slavery institution. There's one commonality, and that is the phenomenon of uh, epigenetics. Okay. What I mean by that is uh, everything that we're exposed to as a child seems to leave an imprint on our DNA. And it's something that they call methylation. It's just addition of a methyl group onto the DNA. And these trauma attach these methyl groups onto our DNA that somehow changes the expression of that gene. Fascinating stuff, Tony. And I'm not even going to claim that I understand the, the nuances and the deep details of it. But the purpose of the discussion for the general audience is that our daily actions do leave an imprint that can go beyond our own life and be transmitted down to our future generations, either good or bad. Boy, say to um, as always, I learned something um, on this program, and I'm sure our listeners do uh, when you're on. Uh, I guess I can't think of a better person to be in the middle of this over uh, as the chief medical officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Um, obviously, you're a wise choice for this. I'm sure like most large organizations, what they're trying to do is uh, really improve the health of Native Americans and at least for their tribe and, and possibly nationally. Um, say to thank you. Thank you for spending time with us today and enlightening us. And uh, thanks for all you do. We're going to follow this with you, man, and and see how it goes. Thank you so much, Tony, and have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you, Setu. That was Dr. Setu Vora, Chief Medical Officer for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. And he always has great information for us. I want to remind everybody to go get a flu shot. i got to tell you, there's still plenty of it. They're giving it out free today in East Hartford. Um, get the flu shot. Avoid these illnesses. Many thanks to Dana Vitanza, who's been working the board for me today. 
Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to have a tape program because I am going to be at the bottom of a mountain uh, north of Quebec City with the U.S. aerial ski team uh, and hopefully uh, keeping them safe from landing on their heads. Um, So I will be away, uh, but I will be back the next week. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.